Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. My name is Pastor Chris. I'm one of the uh, pastor elders here, Chris Cajano, the, the executive pastor. And uh, I get to uh, preach periodically, so I'm, uh, it's my privilege this morning to open the Word of God to you and exposit it to you this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going through um, the book of Hebrews, and we have been d- demonstrating that Jesus is better throughout this entire text so far. And we're going to see that once again this morning. So turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. That's where we're going to turn our attention this morning to. I'll give you a few minutes to get there. Also, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back available for you. Grab one of those, and if you don't have a Bible, you don't own one, save it and keep it and bring it home. We want you to, to have that and to read that. So last week, we saw that our author of Hebrews we don't really know exactly who that is, but, the, but this author finally introduced us to the name, uh, to the person Melchizedek, right? It's a name that's been mentioned a few times up until this point, but now we see who he is. He's an Old Testament figure, first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, um, just three verses there, um, and he's, but he's been a man that's been identified with many titles. First of all, we see that he is the king of Salem, Salem meaning peace, so he's the king of peace, Then we see his name itself means king of righteousness. But he's also called, interestingly, priest of the most high God. So he he serves in this unique capacity as both a priest and a king. And these roles were typically separated in the Old Testament, in Old Testament history. But he is, they're brought together in this man named Melchizedek. And the reason that we saw that the author tells us about Melchizedek to begin with is because he wants to make clear that Melchizedek, is a, this priestly king, is of an order that's superior to, to the Levitical priesthood. And then what he does is he provides two pieces of information to corroborate these, these statements that he makes, to substantiate his claims. First he says, because Melchizedek blessed Abraham... He showed himself to be superior to Abraham, right? Blessings flowed downhill from the greater to the lesser, from the superior to the inferior party. So we see it in that sense. But then secondly, he points out that Abraham demonstrated his subjection to Melchizedek by offering Melchizedek tithes. And, And although the priestly order, the Levitical priestly order had not yet been established, it would come, remember, centuries later after Abraham, uh, Levi, the one who's the Levitical priesthood comes from, his family, Levi, was present though with Abraham in his, in, this, in his ancestor Abraham in the partaking of the blessing and also in the offering of the sacrifice to Melchizedek. So, so that's where we see he's substantiating these claims that Melchizedek is greater priesthood than Levitical priesthood, but the question still is, is why? Why is that important? And the reason is because the author of Hebrews wants us to see and to remember the the superiority of Jesus Christ over the Levitical priesthood because he comes through the line of Melchizedek. In fact, he told us that in in, in verse three, earlier in this passage, that Melchizedek actually resembles the Son of God. He resembles Jesus Christ. His sudden appearance into history Right? And, and, and the lack of a death certificate, it, it gives us this illustration of eternality, of eternity. It was meant to give the impression of eternality. Melchizedek himself wasn't eternal by any means. He had a, he had a birthday and he, and, he had a, and he had a death. But by leaving those records out, we're left with this, this appearance of eternality. 
that this priest is forever serving in, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the, the role of priest to the Most High God. And, so, and I was trying to think about this morning and how that works, but kind of think of, of like a GIF, right? Those, those little, those little uh, um, videos that kind of constantly loop over and over again with no end, beginning and no ending. Well, that, that's kind of the, what the, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wants us to see in our minds when we think of Melchizedek. And then he takes that concept, right, and he applies it to Jesus Christ. So as we learned last week, Melchizedek then serves as a type of Christ, he foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is the true priestly king, the eternal priestly king that would come millennia later, right? And this morning that we see that our author is going to continue on his line of argumentation to make the case, to build this case of the superiority of the priestly order of Melchizedek in order to reveal now in this passage in a different way that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ, at the foundation of our peace with God and the reason that we can look forward to a day we will finally be freed from sin, we'll finally be freed from suffering and enjoy the blessed presence of Christ and, and, and the triune God of grace is solely based on Jesus Christ and his atoning work. And that was true for the original audience that he's writing to and that's true for us today as well, amen? So let's look at our passage, our text this morning. We're going to read, again, chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. So follow along here. This is the very word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For one of whom these things were spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The very word of God this morning. So this morning, if you are taking notes, we're going to um, look at our text this morning and our outline is going to be in three headings. First, we're going to see a change in priesthood. Then we're going to see a change of law in verses 12 through 19. And lastly, we're going to close with looking at a change of covenant so let's first look at the change in priesthood in verse 11 the writer picks up his argument here by pointing out that there's a necessity for the order of Melchizedek he says now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood dot 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 stop right there there was a fundamental flaw he's pointing out here in the Levitical priesthood and that's what made this order of Melchizedek necessary now, the Levitical priesthood had failed to accomplish this one important task, 
which was to bring perfection. It couldn't bring people out of the bondage to their sin. It could not save people. And that's why another better priesthood was needed. One that could actually complete God's plan of redemption to make full atonement for the sin of the people and to bring us into relationship with God, to grant us peace with God. So if we're to use it in a word, word that we've been kind of using over this, the sufficiency of Christ, the Levitical priesthood was therefore insufficient. In, in, in order to, um, to see, to, to understand exactly why it was insufficient to save, it's important for us to look at what it was there for to begin with. What's the purpose of the, of, the, of the Levitical priesthood? Last week, Pastor Lou pointed out that it was the responsibility of the priests to minister in the temple and act as intercessors for the people of Israel. And they did this by offering um, atonement for sins or offering actually sacrifice for sins, caring for the, the religious articles that were in the temple, performing worship activities and instructing the congregation, the people of God, concerning the ordinance of God that were in the law. So they were responsible for administering the law of God that was first handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that's what he's referring to when he says this parenthetical statement, uh, for it was un- for it, for under it, that is under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. So the priests we see were, in essence, the, the champions of the law, right? They were the ones that were responsible for making application of God's law as the mediator between God and man. But of all the responsibilities, the most important of that responsibility was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. That was the most important aspect of the priesthood because it was the one task that dealt with the fundamental problem of the nation of Israel and actually all of humanity in general. And that was the problem of sin. So no matter how religiously, no matter how faithfully these priests would sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats on the altars, we see that it was ultimately insufficient to save people from their sins. In fact, sacrifices themselves were actually never really designed to save people from their sins, as we see. And and the author is going to expand on that. The author of Hebrews is going to expand on that later on in chapter 10 when he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So at best then, we could see that this, this offering, this, these sacrifices that were made on behalf of the people by these priests could only temporarily cover sins, in a sense. It, it could cover sins temporarily, but it could not atone, meaning it could not actually bring about full reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful human population. <clears throat> so that begs the question then, for us, why then did God actually establish the Levitical priesthood to begin with? What was, what was the priesthood's ultimate aim then if it wasn't going to actually bring us into reconciliation with God? Well, what we're going to see, what the author is indicating here, and what we've seen earlier in this passage, now this morning in our text, is that the priesthood was meant, the Levitical priesthood was meant to foreshadow, once again, a greater priesthood. If the Levitical priesthood could actually atone for sin, then, he says, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise in the order of Melchizedek? 
rather than from the order of Aaron. The limitations, so, so, so this is really important to understand. The limitations of the Levitical priesthood were not a surprise to God, right? He actually designed it. So it's not as if God had somehow established this one system, this Levitical system of priesthood, and then when he saw that it had failed to accomplish what his plans and purposes was, he then abandoned it and then just picked up and created a whole other priesthood. That's not what happened. It was always, it's important to understand, it was always God's intention to redeem sinners. Always his intention from the very beginning. And although the Levitical priesthood was a vital part of the Old Testament covenant, covenant, it was only temporary, right? It was only transitory. It was a placeholder until a better perpetual priesthood would finally come. And we see that in Jesus Christ. And so here we see, I think we should take this moment just to pause and see that we on, on display here is the amazing sovereign grace of God for us to see in this passage, in this scripture. We see it in a couple ways. There's probably many ways we could see it, but at least in two ways. If you see other ways, then those are great opportunities to talk about this in community group together. But I'm gonna just point out two this morning. One, we see God's sovereign grace on display here by the establishment of the Melchizedek priesthood centuries before the Levitical priesthood would have even existed. So, Aaron, think about it just for a minute. Before God gave the law to Moses, we see that God had already ordained and was already preparing another priesthood that was going to come that would be superior to the Old Testament covenant, to the Mosaic law, to the Aaronic priesthood. Right, So centuries before it came, he'd already established this order of Melchizedek and it lay dormant for centuries, we see, while the Mosaic law, while the Old, Old Covenant practices were, were playing out and they were pointing to the need for a better covenant. And later, King David came in and he, and he writes Psalm 110, as we'll get to in a little bit. He writes Psalm 110 prophesying that this coming and mysterious eternal priest would finally arrive on the scene and would save people, the, the people of Israel from their enemies. He says they're enemies, but also he's gonna save them from the inward enemy, which is sin. So we see here, just, just pause and reflect on this amazing display of God's sovereign grace that we, that, that it's been presented to us, that he's, that he's in complete control of the universe and, the, and of the world. He's actually, therefore, we see shaping history in order to fulfill this grand design that he had from the very beginning, which is to save humanity from their sins. But the second way we also see his sovereign grace on display is in the establishment itself of the Levitical priesthood. So we see that the sacrifices, they were performed year after year uh, by the priests, um, specifically one day a year, this, this monumental day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And as they did this, year after year, it proved that it was inadequate in and of itself. It was inefficient, ineffective. That's why it had to be done every year because it could not atone for sin. But what it did was it, it served as this, this, this kind of signpost, right? That's pointing out that, that, it, that there's a failure here, that there's something else, is, that something's missing, right? And it's pointing out that there's a need for a greater priest. It's, it's, it's pointing out that Jesus needed to come that his once and for all sacrifice on the cross was finally and fully going to satisfy the wrath of God in, in, his, 
the requirements that he had established and made known in his laws. One commentator I, I liked way, put it this way was in referring to the Levitical priesthood. He said that the priesthood was, quote, an eloquent witness to the need for a new and better priesthood which would operate on the basis of a new and effective principle of justification, end quote. Justification, just, just to unpack that point, we talked about this uh, in, in our, our study in Galatians, but justification is a legal term. It's a, it's a theological term as well that means that there's a declaration of righteousness, that God has accepted us through his son and has declared us righteous, not on the basis of our own merit, but on what Christ has done. And so we see that the Levitical system was insufficient to justify, was insufficient to save us. But instead, it serves as a picture, right? That's, that's been painted, this portrait that shows that there's a greater reality that's still yet to come. So in order for us to be made right with God, our author is telling us then that the priesthood had to, make, had to change. There had to be an adjustment. adjustment. There had to be a change in the, in the priesthood. And as the author points out as well, that if you're gonna change the priesthood, there's also a necessary change in the law itself. Now let me explain that, what that means. The law of God and the priesthood were inseparable in the old, under the Old Testament covenant. That, that, that they could not be separate. They were inseparable. They were a package deal and because if you think about God's law which came down and prescribed how the office of priesthood was going to, to operate um, was then executed by those very priests in order to go along with their role. So the, the law and the priesthood went together side by side. So if there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. What does that mean though? That's, that's what we're gonna look at next is what does it mean that there's a change in the law. Let's look at verses 12 through 19. He's gonna talk about two different aspects of the law that, that, this, that uh, the, the author is referring to here. He's first going to start by, by starting more specifically, and then he's gonna broaden it out and talk about the law as a whole, right? So he's gonna talk first about this one stipulation, and then he's gonna broaden his scope to consider how the entire law was, has been changed. First, he deals with that, that one stipulation in the law about Aaronic succession, Aaron being the, the first to serve as priest. In it. So according to the law, only the Levites could operate in the role of priest. And so that was, a, that was a, just a fundamental uh, uh, requirement for the priestly order. If nothing else, you had to at least be born in the tribe of Levi in order to serve as a priest. There's other things that came after that for sure, but you had to at first, find, at, at the very least, be born under the tribe of Levi, who were descendants again of the first high priest, Aaron, who was Moses' brother. So, because they got the family structure all put down, put together now. But this new priest that's coming is a superior order from the superior order of Melchizedek was not born from the tribe of Levi. Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He instead came from the tribe of Judah. Which, by the way, is, is a, the royal line. So I think, which is interesting here, the author is, is alluding to his Christ's, um, his, his kingly nature as well. That, uh, that, and so we see that because Jesus didn't come from the line of Levi, he came from Judah instead, it's clear that 
the Levitical priesthood had no bearing on him. Had, there, was, there, there were no teeth in it that, was going to, that, 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 that he had to fulfill in that regard to be born under, that, uh, into the live, under the, um, the line of, of Levi. So th- this we see is a clear fulfillment. Here, here's where the, the author's tying it into the prophecy. He's making it clear that based on David's prophecy in, in, in Psalm 110.4 that it says, for it is witness of him that is being Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So see what's going on here is that this, the author is tying this forever prophecy, this prophecy of this forever priest in Psalm 110 now to the indestructibility of Jesus Christ, his eternality, right? So Jesus' birth into the tribe of Judah is not a disqualification. It's not a, a limitation by any means. In fact, it's an exaltation of his status as a superior, eternal, kingly priest. Because he doesn't come from Levi. He comes instead under a different requirement. That is under the requirement of an indestructible life. And then indestructible life means much more we'll see than just immortality, meaning that he lives forever, his eternality. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, it's important to understand how now the author is going to now apply the fact that there's been a change in the law, not only to just that one statement, about the Levitical priesthood, but also about the, the law in general. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 real quick. Verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the immediate context of this commandment that he's referring to, the former commandment that's been set aside because of his weakness and, and, and weaknesses and, and, and uselessness is the ironic succession that we just talked about. It's been rendered weak and useless because Jesus is the better priest because he has now arrived on the scene and he's, done, he's, he's a, from a higher order. But then the author sticks in this interesting statement, the side comment, for the law made nothing perfect. He's using the same language, if you see, that he did earlier in this, in this, in this chapter, in verse 11 that we just looked at. He's using the, the language of perfection. So just as the Levitical priesthood was insufficient to save, so also the law itself can't reconcile us to God as well. It can't make us right with God. God's law cannot make us right with him. We did an exhaustive study of the law when we looked at it in Galatians, no other gospel, and I encourage you to check that out on our website that we recorded all those, all those, uh, those sermons in that series. And during that study, we learned that the law of God reveals his character, that it was given to, to us by God, and that it was good, and it was necessary, right? It's a wonderful, it's a gracious gift from God because it, it shows us, it proves to us that God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know about him. He's not kept himself hidden from us. He's not, he's not shrouded himself in mystery. We, he would be unknowable to us in his transcendence over us, but he's graciously offered a glimpse of who he is in the law. But we also learned that the law itself reveals more than just who God is, it also reveals to us the deplorable state of our own situation, 
as sinners. It exposes that, that hostility that, that, we, that we, within our hearts as lawbreakers, that, it's, that we have an inability, not just an inability, but we have uh, a, an unwillingness to, to surrender ourselves to the law of God, to his per- perfect status, to, to be perfect as God is perfect. We, we, have, we are unable to merit his favor and to escape his righteous indignation towards sin, his wrath towards sin because of our rebellion. Sin is, to, to define it, is that self-centered, rebellious inclination within all of us, right? It makes us, again, unable and unwilling to live in harmony with the God who created us. And because of sin, because of our nature in sin, rather than glorify God, which we were created to do, we instead glorify ourselves, right? We, we chase after those, those wicked desires and passions that rage within our hearts, and that can take many forms. It can, look, it can look very different in different ways. Sometimes those sinful desires, they play out in alcoholism and substance abuse, maybe also in violence or, or in hatred toward other people or, or in lust, right? But it also can be exercised, our rebellion toward God could be exercised in, in, in making good things, the things that God has actually given us as gifts, the object of our worship, the, 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 the basis of our identity as, as people. So by doing that, we expect these things that, that actually what they are, are called are idols. We expect these idols to, to instead give us the purpose and the meaning in our lives. Things that, that, uh, that like, it's like, like work, right? Work is a good thing. It was, it, it was given to us before, uh, before sin entered the world. Work is good but we can become workaholics, right? Relationships as well. Family can, can, can be the object of our, of our everything, of our ultimacy, food, recreation, fitness, fashion, technology, material things. All these things in and of themselves aren't bad. They're not wrong. They're not bad in and of themselves. They're not sinful. But the, the problem lies not with those things, but within our own hearts, that when we make these things ultimate in our lives, when they become the objects of our obsession, when we give them the control over our happiness and our enjoyment and fulfillment in our life, then we effectively dethrone God, right? We, we place them on a, on a high over and above God who instead of the God that we were made to serve, that we were made to worship and to enjoy forever. He gives himself as a gift for us to enjoy forever and yet we shun him, we we, we, we supplant God for other things. And here's the point that the author is making. He says that the law of God is good. It's a good thing. It defines our holiness. It defines sin. And it, and it does more than that. It actually exposes our own sin if we're looking closely at it, like the way a mirror reflects our appearance and shows us who we are. But the law can't curb our sinful desires. Law in itself is not powerful enough to topple those idols that we, are, that we manufacture within our hearts, within our minds, and that we build with, with our hands. So in a sense, in that way, in that sense, God's law is weak and useless. Although it reveals God's character in our sin, it, se- it itself cannot save us. The law exposes our sin, 
But then, but then, it either drives us into despair because we can't abide by God's law or it's going to drive us instead to a savior. 20th century pastor Donald um, Gray Barnhouse gave a great illustration of what was uh, the law's inability to save us uh, by giving this illustration. I, I think is, is just great. He says, quote, take the 11th chapter of Isaiah, which says that the lion shall lay down with the lamb and read it to lions at the zoo. Tell the lion that God's word says that he is to lie down with the lamb. The lion will roar and say that he is tired of horse meat and would like to have some lamb. <laughs> but he wants, to de- he wants to devour, not as a companion. In order to turn the lion from his natural appetite for flesh, it will be necessary to change his nature. Only then will the 11th chapter of, of Isaiah come to fulfillment. And in order to make mankind who is corrupt in his thoughts and ways and deeds live up to the requirements of the law, the miracle of regeneration will be necessary, which plants within him the new nature, a life with Christ, end quote. So we see that reconciliation with God, right standing with God, right relationship with God requires a radical transformation of the heart. And unless God himself is the one who's going to initiate that change, unless he is going to step in and intervene on our behalf, we are, we are in danger of his judgment toward us, of his righteous wrath that burns against us as rebellious creatures. And here's the gospel, though. Here's, here's the gospel in the midst of that bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is that God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our enemies, to save us from the enemy of sin that burns within us, to save us from Satan, to save us from eternal death. Jesus is a superior priest in that he didn't, just, he didn't dismantle the law, so it's not as though he, he, he broke the law, dismantled the law, and showed that it was unnecessary, but what he did was he himself stepped in and he met the righteous requirements of the law. Instead, he fulfilled all of what was necessary in the law in order to then impute his righteousness on, into our account. In order for us to, to be perfect before God, we need to be perfect. We are saved only by perfect adherence to the law. The thing is, we can't do it, but Christ did. So we are saved by his meritorious work, by what he has already accomplished for us, and then he applies it to us. What Luther, Martin Luther, who was one of the, one of the reformers said centuries, centuries ago in the 1500s said, that is called the great exchange, right? And we're gonna see another aspect of that where, where our sin is laid upon Christ on the cross and he atones for that sin, and then his righteousness his perfect adherence of law is then placed upon us in our accounting. So that's the, that's the great exchange. That's the good news that continues when we see that Jesus expunged our sin by offering himself as a sacrifice. His sacrifice, his, himself, which is much more valuable than the blood of bulls and goats that the Levitical priesthood was offering each year. He gave himself he went to the cross on our behalf and he paid the penalty that, that we owed and he paid it in his very blood, which was sufficient to save. 
And his sacrifice was, was a once-for-all sacrifice, not a repeated sacrifice, but a once-for-all-time sacrifice that was acceptable to, acceptable to God. And it was acceptable, we know it was acceptable, because it was proven by his indestructible life, that his life, his, eternal, his eternality was tested on the cross, but he secured our salvation by triumphing over death because he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. And by his death and by his resurrection from the grave, he accomplished all that the Levitical priesthood could never in a million years ever accomplish. The Levitical priesthood failed and was inadequate to secure what Christ has secured in himself, which is peace with God, which is eternal life with him. So the question for us this morning is have we trusted Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Have I trusted Christ? Is our hope for salvation in him alone and what he has accomplished? If not, then I implore you this morning to trust Jesus, to throw yourself upon his mercy and upon his, his sacrifice. Trust in what he has accomplished for you. But maybe you already have trusted Christ and the question is not, have you trusted him? But maybe something has shifted in your life. Maybe turbulence in your life has caused you to lose or your confidence or your confidence in Christ has faded or your hope or your joy in Christ has faded somehow because of what you're enduring, what you're going through in life. Then I'm gonna wanna remind you this morning what we're gonna see in our very next point, which is that Jesus is also because of what he has accomplished, the guarantee of, the, of a greater covenant, a greater relationship that we have with God. So let's look at that in our next, in our final point this morning, in verses 19 through 20, 22, that there has been a change in covenant. Verse 19 22, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, and it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So because of Jesus' priesthood, because of his atoning work on the cross, we can now draw near to God. That, those are the words that the author is, is stating here. That we can now draw near to God. That his presence is now available to us through Christ. Which is something that the old covenant could never do. In fact, in fact the old covenant, in a sense we could say, actually kept us in distance from God. It didn't bring us into in, in, close to God, it actually kept us at an arm's length from God. Remember back in chapter six, right? the author mentioned that Jesus had secured our hope because he entered into the inner place beyond the curtain, on the other side of the curtain. That's of chapter six, verse 19 through 20. That he has is, he is gone, uh, we have this as a secure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here, that curtain that he's referring to would have made a lot of sense to the, to the early Christians here, to the Jewish converts. They understood what that curtain was referring to. It was referring to that, that veil that hung in the temple that, that separated 
people from God, that, that, that blocked entrance into that holiest place where, where God's Shekinah glory, where his, where his presence, his glorious presence dwelt among his people in the middle of the camp of Israel and in the middle of uh, now uh, of Jerusalem. And so it was blocked because were you to enter in your sins, you would have been decimated in the presence of the holy God because of, it, because of his holiness. So it, this was the place beyond the curtain that only the high priest, so not even all priests could enter, only the high priest could enter and only once a year and that was in order to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animals on the mercy seat on the, on the Ark of a Covenant and that would cover the sins of the people for that next year. But we see that Jesus' atoning work essentially tore that veil from top to bottom. He tore that veil that separated us from the presence of God so that we no longer now, because of that, we no longer have to fear God's wrath. We don't have to fear his judgment over our sin. Instead, we, we can now enjoy his presence, his blessed presence. And that means not just at a later date and time, although that is true, we will have unimpeded access to God's very presence physically, spiritually, in, in every way possible, but that that presence of Christ, that presence of God begins even now in the present. It's a present reality because Jesus himself, right? If you remember, he sent his Holy Spirit to reside in our, in our hearts. He said, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm gonna go away, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm leaving you my Holy Spirit and he's gonna dwell within our hearts now. He's gonna dwell within your hearts and he's, he is going to now, the Holy Spirit within us, this, the spirit of Christ that resides in us is now going to empower us to live in accordance with God's law, God's moral law. Yeah, these, these now are unique features of the new covenant that, 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 that our author is referring to, this new covenant, which is better covenant. That we now have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That we now have the law of God that was prophesied in Jeremiah that the law of God would be written on the hearts of, of God's people. That's a present reality. It's now being implanted in our hearts and along with that and the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us, we can now live lives that are pleasing to God. And we obey now God's moral law written on our hearts not as a way to earn God's favor that's already been taken care of in Christ but now we live in accordance with the law, God's moral law, in humble gratitude because of what Christ has done by the one who gave himself for us and loved us first. And now because of that, we can now, we love him and we now we love others as well, right? It's not just loving God, it's also loving your neighbor, the one sitting next to you this morning, as unlovable as we all are, right, at times. And the same Holy Spirit that we now have within us is also still, again, preparing us for that day, that future reality as well that I, that I referred to. The day when Christ will come back for us as his return. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, gives us this amazing promise. It says, in him, that is in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So our inheritance is a guarantee. Eternal life is a guarantee. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that, that all these blessings that we've just talked about, all of what Christ has accomplished, 
are, pre- are all a present reality and a future hope as well because they flow from God's oath. The oath that he made in Psalm 110.4 when he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God the Father speaking to God the Son saying, you are a priest forever. This is an oath that God has made. And the question to us this morning is then, how does this oath that we're reading, how does it bolster our hope in Christ? The answer is, because Jesus lives, because he has risen from the dead, because he now lives and he eternally lives, he has, because of his indestructible life, he is now our forever priest, a priest forever in the, after the order of Melchizedek. Back in chapter six, if we go back there once again, the author has taught us that, that God is trustworthy. And he's trustworthy, and because of his faithfulness, his trustworthiness that is the basis of our security and that's the basis of our hope. That God will deliver on his promises and He was going to deliver on his oaths because God cannot lie. Pastor Ricky said it this way, which is, he said it perfectly. He says, quote, our assurance of hope is rooted in the character of God himself, end quote. God has fulfilled his oath to establish his son, Jesus Christ, as a priest forever. And the proof of that, of his trustworthy, of the trustworthiness of his nature and of his word, is that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the grave. And that he has defeated death, he has conquered death, and because he lives, he now stands as the perpetual guarantee of a better covenant that we now experience as New Testament believers. Right? The new covenant, which determines how we are going to relate with God, has been forged in Jesus' blood and his priestly work. We're going to talk a little bit more about covenant and what that means and the new covenant means in the next chapter. But he, he's giving this, this, this little nugget now of what, of what covenant is and saying that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He brings about, Jesus himself is the one who brings about the perfection that we just talked about was necessary for us to be brought back into the presence of God. And he has not only forgiven our sins, but he has also made a way for us to be with him. That, that presence that was, that was originally uh, true in the garden with Adam and Eve, who had, pres- had the very presence of God with them at all times, has, has been broken because of sin, but now that's going to be reestablished under the new covenant. We, he has made a way for us to be with him. And we now no longer have to, to, to look at Christ and, and enjoy him and look at God and enjoy him from afar, from some kind of a distance. There's no longer a separation of distance between us, but now we have direct access to God because of the sufficient work of Jesus Christ, his son. And that is what the original readers were missing. That's, that's, what, they were, that's what they were dealing with in their present their present time and their hour. They were facing this intense persecution. They were facing intense pressure from their friends, from their family, from, from the greater Jewish community to abandon, abandon Christ and to return to Judaism. And the reason this temptation for them was so strong was because the Levitical priesthood was still very much in operation. It was still going on around them. 
Little did they know that in 70 AD that was all going to be demolished with the demolishment of the temple. But at the time, the priesthood was still going on around them. And they were being tempted to go back to it. But he wants them to remember, the author of Hebrews wants them to remember that the tomb is empty and the veil has been torn and that true and lasting peace, joy, and hope that, that they were looking for, they were seeking, was still found only in Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for them in the old, old order of things. There's nothing left in the old covenant or in the Levitical system because Jesus is the superior priest. There's nothing to go back to for them because what the law and the priesthood could never accomplish has been fulfilled in Christ. It was a pointer to Jesus and now that has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so for them, it was not only foolish for them to place their hope in a dead system, but it was actually to their detriment. It was dangerous for them to do that because they were setting themselves up against God himself. They were rejecting the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that temptation is just as real for us today too, isn't it not, right? That, so the question is for us, how does this relate to us? Well, what are we clinging to for our source of, of confidence, for our security, for the hope and the joy that, that we're seeking. Is it in religion? Is it in an idol? Or is it in Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient sacrifice for us? Here's another way of, of putting it. Let me ask you this question. Does the thought of being in the presence of God bring you fear or joy? Right? The answer to that question is probably a good indication as to what you're trusting in for your confidence. Is it, in the, is it in the person and work of Jesus Christ or is it in something else? A Christian apologist, Dr. James White, give a, gives a good illustration of what human religion does. That human religion is effectively sewing together once again that veil that Christ tore with his sacrifice. Stitching it back together to, to remain in, in separation from God. Are, are you content, am I con- content to remain separated from God knowing ultimately that that is going to bring us eventually to face eternal destruction? Are you trusting maybe in your own brand of righteousness? Or are you accepting the love of God and what he has done for us? Right? The default mode of our hearts is to, is to find some, some way that we can do it on our, on our own. We can do it ourselves and that, and that train of thought can easily seep back into our minds, into our hearts, if we're not constantly remembering the gospel, right? If we're not constantly pounding the gospel into our heads each and every day, at every moment of the day. And, and not only doing it to ourselves, reminding ourselves, but reminding one another as well of the gospel, of the good news of what Jesus has done. So this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this passage serves to all of us, serves all of us as both a a warning but also as a a sense of encouragement for us to remain faithful, to to trust in Christ, to remember what Christ has done, to cling to what he has done and not try to do it ourselves. Because after all, Jesus Christ is the better high priest. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And because he died in our place and because he is raised from the dead, he now lives forever forever. 
as the guarantee of a better covenant, the covenant that now brings us into the very blessed presence of God himself. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, once again for your word. Your law is a sobering reminder of just our incapacity and our unwillingness to bow our knee to you, the God of the universe, the God who created us and fashioned us in order to enjoy you forever, and yet we are separated from you because of our sin, but, but yet you have not left us in that situation, in that condition, but instead you've offered your son, you've offered your son, Jesus Christ, to be that mediator, that high priest, that no earthly human priest who was sinful in and of himself could ever accomplish because his sacrifice, his perfect obedience to the the law, because of his atoning death, because of his resurrection from the grave, he is now ascended on high and now serves as our ultimate high priest forever and ever and has made us acceptable to God when we place our faith and trust in him. So Lord, we pray this morning that our faith would remain steadfast because it's not up to us. Our confidence is not in our own strength. It's in the strength of Jesus Christ himself. May that constantly play over and over in our minds and may that propel us to live lives that glorify you in humble obedience and in joy and also in the desire to demonstrate and declare the gospel to all those that are around us who need desperately to know you and to be brought into reconciliation with God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.